0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Nearly every introduction to the Appalachian Trail seems to begin by giving its length, about 2,100 miles, and inform us that the Appalachian Trail goes from Georgia to Maine, which is strange when you think about it. No one much talks about I-95 or the I-10 or the I-5. Maybe they should. And when they do, they don't tell us about their length or where they begin and end. Neither of these things really tell us much about the thing itself. Philip Tenieri has done something different. He has written a book of the Appalachian Trail and done it by writing about the lives of those involved with it as creators, hikers, planners, and writers, a wonderfully curious collection of Americans. But in the end, these human lives end up becoming the collective life of a 2,100-mile path that goes all the way from Springer Mountain, Georgia, to Katahdin in Maine. Philip Denieri, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Uh, thanks very much for having me.
0: So, uh, it's a great book. Uh, congratulations on the wonderful press it's getting and reviews. Uh, and m- you must be very thoroughly chuffed about that. And, I am. I'm
1: encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: especially as your first book, you feel like you've hit all the, all the, all the little pineapples have come up on the machine, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, but it deserves, it deserves its praise. So, uh, you teach uh, courses on the built environment at the university of Michigan. So, uh, that is one of those sort of Amazon biography blurbs that might confuse some more than it informs. Uh, What is the built environment?
1: The built environment is, uh, there's a couple, there's two possible definitions. So the, the most straightforward one is that the built environment is the environment that isn't the natural environment. So, the field that i originally come from is urban and regional planning and half of my teaching appointment is in the urban and regional planning program and if you're an urban planner the built environment means streets water and sewer infrastructure uh, buildings things like that the urban fabric Um, but the other half of my job is in the program in the environment at the university of michigan which know, sort of a generic environmental studies program. Um, And and there we talk about the built environment, not as a contrast to the natural environment, but as something that is always intermixed with and a part of the natural environment. Mm -hmm. So built environment can mean just the built stuff that's obviously built but the way that i use it more often is that it's the aspect of any environment we encounter even a seemingly natural place like the appalachian trail that actually has built components to it mm-hmm. and by the way the reason the biography blurb says that is that it's easier to say teaches courses <laughs> in the built environment than to talk about 50% appointments in these yeah. in these in these it, departments that have it, you know 18 word long names it
0: is so the, the, um, I love this. I love the discussions of the built environment, and the, uh, it's, uh, I'm a big devotee of the, I don't know what the hell he is, landscape historian John Stilgo, who's taught me a lot about the way that landscapes work, and the, this fascinating place where geography and culture and history all come together. And the Appalachian Trail is definitely one of those places. It's a very thick seam where all those things come together. So, the Appalachian Trail though people are saying, "Hey, that's a that's a walk in the woods." It's a path. It's a path through the wilderness. How is the Appalachian Trail built environment?
1: Well, uh, you know, a few different ways. The most obvious one is there would not be a trail if a lot of trees hadn't been cut down. There's virtually nothing natural about the trail itself. It's not you know, the remnant of some earlier path created by people's natural walking patterns or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, the idea was presented uh, almost exactly 100 years ago over the next roughly 15 years uh, a route was determined and trees were marked and and a path was cleared so it's built in that you know they had to create the path out of nothing there are shelters along the way there are parking lots that virtually everybody uses as their means of access to the trail so it's a built environment in that you've got to do a lot of building to create it in the first place and then to maintain it in this larger sense it's also a built environment in that we have built this place to reflect a set of needs And just like with you know a home that you might live in or some other you know structure or place that gets gets built around uh, people's wants and needs, the Appalachian Trail and the protection that surrounds it uh, you know is is a built environment in that sense.
0: So let's um, go to the beginning of your story. And I want to not, you focus on different people, and we're going to focus on, and and, and more or less on on many of them, not all of them, I want people to read the book. But I want to focus on certain concepts that they, that it strikes me that you emphasize or struck me was the theme of what they were about. Um, and some of them are conflicts of vision as well. There's two, in fact, two two at the heart of this are the the two of the first, the sort of the planner and the promoter, the guy who put the, the Appalachian Trail are famously in conflict. And so too are two of the first thru-hikers are famously in conflict in the in the history and the lore of the Appalachian Trail, which is, is fascinating. There's lots of conflicts in the history of the Appalachian Trail. There's lots of, I should also say, very sad and depressed people involved <laughs> in this. Uh, it's really a little chastening to see that uh, – that their contact with the Appalachian didn't make necessarily make their life better. Hopefully, it made their life better, but it was there's still there's a lot of sadness, um, suicide, uh, depression, etc. But uh, let's start with uh, Guillaume. Uh, this is uh, a a Swiss, a French Swiss who um, who comes over. It follows his friend Louis Agazes, uh, guy's name, guy's name, wrong. Um, who comes up again and again in this podcast? And then Guillaume is the first person to do a geological survey of the Appalachian Mountains. So, what does, what does, what does uh, give us a background on him and and why this is important to your story?
1: Well, to a certain extent, before Guillaume came along there were no Appalachian Mountains in <laughs> the European-American consciousness. Uh, Guillaume came and mapped and measured the, you know, the the most of the length of the range of the Appalachian Mountains and gave them, uh, you know, form and identity. Um, and even in calling them the Appalachian Mountains in his uh, – you know, writing about them helps solidify that as the name for the entire mountain range. Um, that, that
0: we go- should, let's just underline this yep. because this is – you see this again and again in history and um, in intellectual history and other types where – I mean it, this might sound strange to people. But people in the, Virginia were calling it the Blue Ridge. In Pennsylvania, they call it the Blue Mountain. Um, uh, it's the Catskills in New York. It's the Kittatinny mountains in Northern New Jersey, right across the border. It looks like the same mountains to me, but one's the Catskills, one's the Kittatinny. We could keep on going up and South. It takes a sort of, um, a triumph of both classification followed by a triumph of imagination for me to be in South Carolina and look at that first ridge of mountains and say, oh yeah, that's the same mountain that I see in Charlottesville. That's the Blue Ridge. It's gone all the way down because they would be the Smokies in North Carolina or all the rest of this sort of stuff. There's, so Guillaume is a person that draws a circle around them and says, these are the Appalachians and sort of transforms the way people f- see them.
1: Yeah. And he – because prior to then, for most European Americans, their consciousness is devoted to the land and settling and making money off the land. Well, the the mountains then don't feature very much for you for two reasons. Number one, you can't do much with them and from an agricultural perspective. And number two, they're in the way of getting farther west to the next place where you can do something. So they were just, you know, effectively a desert on the map. You know, we know roughly where they are. And yeah, we'll have one name for them in North Carolina and a different name a little bit, you know, farther north. Um but there was no need to understand them as a singular thing guillo comes out of and is one of the founders of uh, the modern notion of uh ecology taking form in europe and he helped import it to to america um that begins to see the natural world in its own right and in fact for Guillot, it's very caught up in uh his christianity of that age and the two for him mesh very well with one another so Guillaume, uh, to me, is an early version of a story that repeats itself time and time again, which is someone has a spiritual need in their lives. They see nature out there. They go to exercise that spiritual quest in the – in a, they, they do it through an experience of nature, and you put those two things together, and you get – a certain set of stories around what nature is and why we go there. So to Guillot, he was itemizing the magnificence of God's creation. Um, and, and that was and it was that worldview that enabled him to see that project in the first place of let's map and measure these things. And that his particular version of it has, you know, evolved into different ways of some of the same styles of thought since or maybe we don't use that particular formulation as much anymore as he did um but you can see all the way back there in the 1840s when he's doing this work that basic starting point of there's a story here in the mountains that is bigger than ourselves um but and one that we want to find our place in Um, and that was what motivated him to you know name and label the Appalachian range.
0: And there's also, this is also part of the story of the Apple of the Appalachian trail, as well as the Appalachians is that Gio is also interested in the use that can be made of these places.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, in, in, interestingly, um, he got caught up in uh, the potential military use of them. It turned out that he he knew more about the Southern Mountains than virtually anybody else, and that wound up becoming uh, uh, a very key piece of knowledge. He wound up writing this paper that was squirreled away in archives for decades before it got rediscovered, interestingly, by uh, the sort of prime mover of building the AT Myron Avery, uh, you know, in the 1930s.
0: Um, let's go to some, uh, another reason, uh, why the Appalachian trail is possible is people started to camp, um, which in say 1850 might've been an eccentric choice. Why would you want to spend time outside in such a fashion? But by the late 19th century, uh, People are starting to have leisure time and people are, are wanting to, they want to do something with this new, this weekend. Uh, maybe they can go in, and camp. Um, so uh, in this story uh, comes Horace Kephart, uh, who is one of the very, if not the first, then in the, in the oh, George Washington Sears, Horace Kephart, um, there's an eccentric schoolmaster in Connecticut, I think, who takes his kids on camping trips in the 1850s in order to prepare them for a war with the South um yeah Maybe. this is yeah. yeah no 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 Frederick, Frederick Gunn I think is, is his name um so the, but these are like the people that sort of start to pop right about it and popularize it so explain yeah. uh Kephart's role in this why and why he does it
1: um well Kephart is a, a exemplary of the late 19th early 20th century uh People are beginning to live in cities. They are, (laughs) the economy in general is providing for a decent sized middle class. So not only do people have leisure time, Uh, There are more people with more leisure at their disposal, but they're living in, in general, a, a, a safer, more predictable environment so that the woods and the outdoors begins to seem like a pleasant alternative as opposed to what it had been prior to then, either a place that you needed to eke out a living from or a place where you needed to you know be utterly fearful of the dangers that presented themselves out there by around 1900 there's a lot of people who are wanting space and distance from the cities and suburbs where they're living their lives and they've got the means to do so um, so kephart was a uh, hard drinker although he came from a religious family he wasn't himself religious uh, so he's a, in one sense completely different from the sober and upright uh, Arnold Guillot of a few decades earlier in the in in the way that they see themselves in the world and and their personalities. But they both have this uh, thing in common of, okay, even though a lot has changed, um, uh, there's a story to be built around myself, they would say, out there in this backwoods, and and so that's what I'm going to go do. So, um, you know, Kephart was a librarian. He was the head of St. Louis's library for years before he ran into trouble with alcohol and a variety of other things. Um, and he built this persona as a writer, uh, as somebody who, you know, made himself healthy and found out what's real in the world by going camping and hiking and hunting and fishing. Um, and, you know, as other historians uh, whom I cite in the book have pointed out, it's that it's not a sort of unusual or an irony that this was somebody with a comfortable middle class life. Who discovered the outdoors? Everybody who was embracing the outdoors and this notion of camping in this period around 1900 came from that you know segment of society.
0: Or, or, or yeah, and this and it accounts for lots of things. I mean this is um, well, I, I would say that I think there, there was a third way of, of camping, and it was basically uh, disreputable. Uh, George Washington Sears Nestmook, he refers to himself as a woods loafer. And so I think there's a kind of like uh, like a hippie and Mackinaw is what I kind of think of it, where they just want to kind of tune in, tune out, drop out and just go off in the woods and hang out and, you know, make pancakes and, and kill fish and, and game and stuff like that. And just ch- and hang out for a week or two. Uh, this is not, you know, market hunting in the 18th century, but somehow Kephart and so and and, and Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, a host of others, they begin to make this sort of respectable. And, and, the, Boy yeah, Scouts, a... and the Boy Scouts, Dan Beard, you know, uh, Ernest Thompson Seton, all those things. These things are all happening at once to make, you know, going out into the woods a sort of respectable pursuit of, you know, of, of, of wondering at nature.
1: Yeah, it's this interesting combination. You know, Teddy Roosevelt is a perfect example of almost the more refined and distinguished I am, um, the more... Rough and ready, I can be, and you know one features into the other. So these are these, you know, well-educated people leaving, leading you know, comfortable lives, and it becomes this badge of honor that mm-hmm. oh well, I'm I'm real and I'm authentic because I go off and and rough it in the woods.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's a, I mean, in Roosevelt's case, and this is the the sort of the gospel that he preaches. It's it's part of his also admonition to this other silk stockings like himself that they need to get involved in politics and they take risk. You know, they need to go and take, make, take action. That's one of his, one of his admonitions, right? Um, Yeah. And uh, so in, in some ways going camping, going out into the wilderness is, is is preparatory for one's service to society. Uh, If you can do that, if you can go out and, you know, camp in a blizzard or camp in the great, in the smoky mountains or, you know, hunt mountain lions, whatever, that's indicative of a personality that can also take risks in politics and life and business and so on
1: yeah i think that there's 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 all of these different versions of how how we can improve ourselves as individuals improve our society as a whole by getting out into the outdoors in particular ways and and those you can see the the ambitions for the appalachian trail shifting over the years as whatever these different people over different periods of time feel like society needs and Mm -hmm. you know so the outdoors is where we uh in horace kephart's case retain our connection to the pioneer spirit that we are losing in the you know Mm -hmm. the overly comfortable 20th century um you know and then benton Mackay, who creates the Appalachian Trail in terms of, of uh, authoring the idea for it he's got a notion of well it's where we are going to protect our natural resources and uh, you know uh, live a more egalitarian life by you know getting out of the exploitative city and then decades later the National Park Service comes along and says well here's why we need it so there's always these this this shifting uh, you know sort of roster of, of what we're ultimately about it's this one place uh, this one idea of a trail that runs over 2,000 miles, but what it means and why people are engaging with it is is changing with and reflecting these different time periods.
0: So the Appalachian Trail, is people might be surprised, is it's not the first trail in American history. Obviously, the Oregon Trail, Trail the Mormon Trail, the Santa Fe Trail, these are also, these are trails. Uh, But it's not even the first recreational trail. And um, this is a fascinating story. Uh, I know about the Long Trail in Vermont. I think I've been on it for a little bit. But it's, this gets us to another concept. Um, Almost, it's almost inevitably a German one. It's Heimat. And somehow it's Heimat and Vermont is is bound together uh, with the character of, of james P. Taylor um, so explain w- how, why Heimat is important here because I think this is another th- this is another theme that goes I think all the way to the current present with parts of the Appalachian trail
1: yeah um so James P. Taylor uh created the Long trail um after encountering this idea of, of Heimat from Germany. And I'm pretty sure that he encountered it in Germany, but I was never able to fully nail that down.
0: But It's interesting. I saw again and again, looking at the footnotes, how there are certain things, obvious things about people that could be inferred. But it's interesting I mean, how difficult it is. Uh, there are pa- these are not people with extensive paper collections um, all the time, so it's difficult to figure out.
1: Yeah, and a lot of them very, um, you know, uh, careful about what they would allow to be known about them and whatnot. So sometimes mm. there is a lot of paper about one aspect of their existence, but, but not others.
0: Right, right, right. But,
1: so the, the creation of trails as purely recreational outlets had been going on primarily in England, uh, in New England for a while, um, starting with the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Um, and, and there were recreational trails in Vermont when Taylor came along. But uh, James P. Taylor had heard about um, the creation of a trail linking communities through the woods in the Black Forest of Germany. And he said, hey, everybody, we could do that in Vermont. Um, he was somebody who believed that the outdoors, and he was originally a teacher, so that outdoor education for young people was an important and wholesome thing. Vermont was down on its luck at the time. It was, you know, agriculture was rapidly leaving the state. The mountains were seen as this burden that the state had to put up with. And he said, look, if we ran a trail from mountaintop to mountaintop, bottom of the state to the top of the state along this green mountain chain, um, and then trails running down from that main one into, into the communities along the way, Uh, our our citizens and our residents could embrace the mountains and could recreate in them and learn from them. Uh, We might even attract outsiders here. We could create this naturalistic realm that in his mind would embrace and express the best of Vermont life. And that's this notion of Heimat that came out of Germany. Um, It roughly translates as homeland. And in the Germany of the late 1800s there was this emerging school of thought that where we fundamentally are as German people is is in our woods and in our land and the more we can get to know it and hike in it and have accommodations for people in it, the healthier we'll all be the more we'll all be tied together by uh, a sense of joint purpose. So Taylor said we could do that in Vermont and you know, Pretty quickly, they did. Um, now, he he could be a bit too much of a civic booster for a lot of the people in the hiking community who wound up doing the legwork to build the trail. Mm-hmm. And Benton Mackay with the Appalachian Trail ran into the same problem where there's both a philosophy and a trail. And, and this was true for both uh, James P. Taylor with the Vermont Long Trail and for Benton Mackay with the whole Appalachian Trail. There's both a philosophy and a trail. It proved pretty easy for enthusiasts to grab a hold of the trail idea and let a lot of the philosophy and the larger ambitions kind of fall by the wayside.
0: And and it was interesting to me that sort of the same thing happens, the long trail that does with the AT, um, that uh, is they quickly come up with a long trail based on forest roads, um, which is not is a pleasant walk in the woods, but after maybe 50 miles, it gets somewhat monotonous uh, to be on the, 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 fire roads or the logging, the logging roads, because you see a lot of trees and not a whole lot else. But I, now I forget, I, I didn't put this in my notes. There's some, this, this guy who did a brilliant landscaping job of, of directing the long trail. I have to say better than it looks like the AT ultimately uh, the, the, people who built the Appalachian Trail did. He found the best places to go through and the best overlooks and he carefully put the the long trail through so that the long trail became very very scenic.
1: Yes, and of course Al you have caught me I with know, the I but both
0: books. of us both of us are so well prepared. Yeah. Oh, Anyways, name, but he, you, you mentioned I'm him in passing I, I went and looked him up, and I looked up, you know, to, to and I really want to to walk the long trail now because it is it's quite it's quite something. Um,
1: yeah. So, I mean, to your large, it, it's really unforgivable for him to escape my, uh, for his name to escape me at the moment. But that happens with my own children, not. Yeah, frequently. it's okay. So, but the the point is, yeah, when they built these trails there was this lofty ambition of oh we'll run over the ridgeline over this great length it became pretty hard to do that so they found the routes that would work in the meantime and as often as not that was logging roads that were already existing or in the case of the long trail the state said well we'll build a pathway for firefighting equipment but we don't want to have to run over the ridgetops so you know the things got pieced together on a you know uh, in an ad hoc way until someone else might come along and say, "Okay, well now we can reroute it to this, you know, yeah. more scenic vista." Uh, there
0: are man. there are a lot of trails hiking, you know, fifteen miles behind where I'm sitting right now. There are lots of trails up in the Blue Ridge, which are former part former paths of the Appalachian Trail, which are now still hiking trails of a different kind. But they this is the and it's been rerouted for a number of different reasons, storms. Uh, Hurricane Camille, I think, uh, washed it out, you know, various things washed the Appalachian trail out and re- yeah, the, have required to reroute.
1: I was really interested in doing the research to learn how much the name and the idea have stayed the same over a hundred years, but the actual physical placement and location of the trail has changed massively. I mean, yeah. moved great distances, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and more than once over certain stretches. Um, so it's, it's, it's still the Appalachian Trail, even when it moves. It's, it's the idea that holds the thing together. But you know, rerouting for various reasons continues to happen to this day.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Benton Mackay. Uh, don't try to spell the name as it sounds. Um, who is w- – and, and, and Myron Avery. So we've got The Planner. Uh, I, when I reading about Makai at first, I was, I, I, I thank God that he was not the kind of planner that had access to a secret police force, uh, (laughs) because he had really big ambitions. Um, but he also, also lost interest in things. So that's okay. Uh, that's all right. Uh, and so he is, he is the grand planner and in many ways, his, um, the person that brought about a segment of his dream, uh, and I should say just a mere segment, because his dream is much bigger than the Appalachian Trail, is, is the go-getter, the executor, uh, Myron Avery. So could you set both of them up for us? And, sure. And yeah. we go, go back to this idea of conception versus execution, planning versus execution.
1: Yeah, Benton MacKay was the the planner, the visionary, the you know idea person. He was um, one of the very first people trained as a forester in the U.S. Um, came from a family tradition of social agitation and activism, and he had um, really interesting notions about how you could develop the entirety of the hinterland, the, the the backwoods and the natural areas that form the setting of and provide the resources for cities and urban development. Um, a big thinker, his ideas, you know, kept branching out into more and more, you know, possible implications. Um, his initial idea was, what if we protected a realm along the high ground of the Appalachian Mountains, not just a trail and not just a corridor for the trail, but big, expansive protected areas. um, And situated within that, in this mountain realm, Uh, small communities that would have small permanent populations, but would be open to visitors from the cities where people would get reconnected with nature. They would learn crafts. They would see how their, you know, civilized urban life was connected to and grew out of this, this natural realm that they were surrounded by. Um, And he said, well, as long as we're going to have these communities, we could stitch them together with a trail. So So this is the idea.
0: The so idea this was that he a,
1: publishes. he
0: publishes. He's a forester. He's been – um. he's come into government. I mean, this is the Gifford Pinchot, Teddy Roosevelt. This is – forestry in some weird way is at the very heart Of progressive culture and politics, Um, and it's how we're going to use the resources properly and and plan for that. And then he has this idea. So we can imagine, like, um, in fact, it's really cool. He was at the ceremony at the priest where Myron Avery was, which is my favorite mountain in the Blue Ridge, uh, when they completed the Appalachian Trail, quote unquote, because it wasn't. We'll see. We'll see about that, Um, but. The priest and other places, and say the Thomas Jefferson, George Washington National Forest or wilderness areas. I think Mackay's really brilliant idea is that everything above, like, say, 2,500 feet will be a wilderness area. Um, and then below it, you can ex- carefully exploit it for timber and other products, right? That's, that's sort of it. And then yeah. we're going to have lots of, you know, the Damascus, Virginia's. Um, now like the one town, well, that's not true of Hanover and lots of Hanover, New Hampshire's towns that are, you know, these cool towns on the Appalachian Trail. there'll be lots of them and they'll be connected by this place. It's like, you know, and, and there'll be the possibility as Bill Bryson says, a walk in the woods, I can go fly down to Georgia and walk home. Um, right. you can just take a walk back from town to town, you know, going from these interesting places to interesting places. Yeah, and
1: I mean in in Mackay's vision, it's a vision of social reform. It's grounded in nature and natural resources, and it's given shape by these little communities that are that have a trail connecting them. Mm -hmm. Um, And Myron Ave, so Mackay gets things going, but as I said, as you said, he's a big idea guy. He wants to develop other ideas. He wants to write a book. So, in terms of doing the legwork to organize actual trail construction, he's not all that. Um, he's not all that engaged. In part, that's because he's not interested in the trail for its own sake. He's interested in the communities. The, the the fact that the trail links together to him is less important than that the larger ideas are being implemented place to place. And he's happy to have the trail grow up haphazardly, organically over time. Um,
0: so that, that make, so then that- that to me is his saving grace. He's not a planner from the top down. He has this idea that this: if you cast this vision, then allow the people to build it from the bottom up. Um, you know that's and and Myron Avery wants to get things done, and sometimes right. you have to drive people to get things done.
1: Right, so so Mackay creates the the framework of an uh, what was then called the Appalachian Trail Conference to do this work, and there's this somewhat empty shell existing when Myron Avery, a Washington D.C. attorney, comes along, is fascinated by the notion of one enormously long trail, and he puts so much time and energy. Into it, um, and alienates so many people with his his enthusiasm and his imperious manner that he becomes very quickly the you know the master builder of the AT. So Mackay's article gets published in 1921. Uh, the last original segment of a contiguous Appalachian Trail is completed in 1937. So it's only 16 years. It's volunteer labor, um, and that only happened that quickly and that completely because Myron Avery was this this driving force behind it,
0: and and civilian Conservation Corps labor in the South, since one of, one of the things they discovered was is that there are no towns or cities to escape from, in the Smokies or or farther south. Uh, you had to bring in labor of some kind. Um, there weren't yeah, there a lot of volunteers of- living nearby. Charlotte yeah. wasn't Charlotte. Asheville wasn't Asheville at the time. Atlanta wasn't even Atlanta. Um, it's, yeah. it, was, uh, it was very different down there than it was in Connecticut and New England. Sure.
1: Yeah, the very first purpose-built Appalachian Trail, as opposed to connecting together pre-existing ones, uh, was in Bear Mountain State Park just north mm-hmm. of New York City. That's not a coincidence. The trail was built as a place for city people to get to. The volunteer labor that it could find was in cities and in these places that were more remote and farther away from larger cities, Uh, yeah, you know, finding the volunteer labor was a more difficult thing to do.
0: We should say that there are some other things going on simultaneously with this Depression Civilian Conservation Corps. uh Shenandoah National Park has or send State Park has been created uh, by driving lots of people, um, lots of poor whites off of their um, basically the Swiss Alpine farms. We might they would be a very different landscape if the shiftlets were still living up on top of the Blue Ridge. Um, these are people with with cattle, and you can still go hiking along the trail and see the apple orchards or the remains of them. If you can pick them out, um, you can see the, the sort of the large oaks that must've been that are now wolf, sort of wolf oaks, wolf trees in the midst of, of a, a smaller forest. And uh, you realize that you were once in a pasture and this was a pastoral oak looking out over the, you know, the landscape. It's a very different landscape, which is then wildernessized.
1: Yeah, it, that was true in Shenandoah national park. That was true in great smoky mountains, national park. Um, you know, the, The creation of nature always involves the taking away from that space of the human history that's there. And that was, you know, when, so in the early 1900s, the National Park Service is created in 1916. uh, This... As we were talking about earlier, this interest in getting to the outdoors for the alternative that it provides is becoming much more popular um, and and the access is becoming much more available. In the Western US, national parks and national forests could be created by holding back from settlement. Land that was already in the control of the federal government because it had been taken from natives in the eastern half of the U.S., you were only going to create national parks and national forests if you could cobble together through either purchase or eminent domain the land from, you know, European American owners that it already had. And so in Great Smoky Mountains in Shenandoah, yeah, that meant saying to folks, look. We value this as a natural area. Your use of it, no matter how real it is to you, doesn't jibe with the naturalness that we want to see in it. Therefore, there's no room for you anymore.
0: So, in a way, nas- in a weird way, national parks move west to east, where the concept of park moves west to east. We take Yellowstone and we impose it upon sort of the mountain culture of the Blue Ridge, uh, which has been there for almost 300 years. Uh, by that time. Yeah, actually. Uh it's been there for a while. Uh but meh, it's okay. We we want it to be more like Yellowstone. We want it to be like that. We don't want we don't want you making moonshine and picking right. apples and raising your cattle, you know, taking them up hot to higher pastures during the summer or anything like that. You know, sorry. Yeah, it's
1: that it's 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 another version of we get an idea in our head of what nature is and looks like it's based on what we need from it and then mm-hmm. we go out there and we have to to some extent manufacture it for ourselves and which that's is, what this concept built environment
0: means which is sad because i would like both kinds of parks i mean bill bryson says this as well in walk in the woods when he's walking through the uh, new, the new jersey part of the appalachian trail and it's a little uh, it's a area that was supposed to be a reservoir by the delaware water gap and it's 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 villagey and it's it's for him coming from England, it's a much more European landscape. Um, yeah. and, and and i think I think that would be an attractive different type of of landscape to walk in, uh, as much as I like being out alone in the woods, yeah,
1: we are definitely, um, you know, I, I hear from my students that I teach that. The notions of a bright line distinction between, you know, uh, built on this side of the line and perfectly pristine natural on the other side of the line, and never the twain shall meet, that is so rapidly disappearing. And an unpeopled wilderness or nature, just you know, it it was always an invention and one that you know generated. Uh, Violence against people, um, and it's it's becoming less and less tenable. The idea that we've got to create and imagine these, you know, strictly natural places um, is is it's not as prevalent as it was. But when they were building the AT, when they were building these nat- national parks, that was seen as as the be all end all.
0: Mm-hmm. Um- Speaking of, this is not just a sort of airy-fairy intellectual discussion about wilderness and unpeopledness. It actually affects the way that people see the trail they walk on. So let's talk about two of, I think still the most famous through hikers in AT history, uh, Earl Schaefer and Emma Gatewood, um, who sort of like Mackay and Avery ended up in, um, well, at least one of them was hostile to the other. Let's put it that way. I'm not in both. In bo- both of these sets, there was animosity, but it might have only been on one side. I, I'm not. I'm yeah. not quite clear. Yeah. With
1: with Mackay and uh, and um, Avery, it was clearly
0: mutual, it was clearly mutual and mutual. Okay. Yeah.
1: In the case of of Earl Schaefer, generally recognized as the first thru hiker. Um, and Emma, Grandma Gatewood, the first solo woman through Hiker, um, the animosity was more from him towards her. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, let's, so get to, Schaefer, let's get to that in just a, a bit. But Schaefer is – he's an Army veteran from the Pacific Theater. Um, yes. And he comes back and he doesn't know what to do like a lot of guys in 45. And so he decides to go for a walk. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. he. Uh, it, the idea had initially come to him before he served in World War II. He came back from World War II uh, disgruntled, uh, unfocused, not sure what to do next. And He had heard about this trail being constructed, had thought it would be a neat idea to walk it from one end to the other. By the way, nobody in the early years of the Appalachian Trail built it with the idea it was there for through hiking. But yeah. not surprisingly, once it was there, people started to think along those lines. So Schaefer um, in the summer of 1948 sets out from uh, the southern terminus of the trail in Georgia and heads north. Um, and And he hikes all the way to Maine. The trail had fallen apart a lot during the war years. It was difficult for him to find the trail, but uh, he keeps a journal. He reports to the ATC when he's done. I have hiked the entire length of this trail, and um, really sort of plants his own flag as I'm the first person to have done this. Eventually, publishes a book about it that um, you know it, it, it has a lot of the elements of sort of the mythology of such a thing that you would expect. The loner in the woods finds himself.
0: So, and, and his, definitely his idea of a through hiker or of an Appalachian, an a- hiker of the Appalachian trail um, is someone who is alone, uh, who is, perhaps not quite unsupported as we would say now I mean it's impossible to be unsupported all the way up the Appalachian Trail but as close as, as you can get I mean who's not uh, who how does how does he conceive of of being a thru hiker because this is it's very interesting the way he lays down very his very strict guidelines in his head of what a a, a proper thru hiker should be like
1: well some of those very strict guidelines he developed it has to be said in retrospect uh, in trying to protect his own reputation and the uniqueness of what he had done. But yes, his idea is that it is a test of his, uh, mental and physical skill to undertake this trial and succeed at it. And it's all about being separate from everybody else and being alone in nature and making your way. Um, now, you know, he had a pack with him. He had a poncho, he had, uh, you know, boots, um, he, you know, stayed in shelters. He, um, but but his notion was, uh, it, it, and we all do this when we when we go off to the woods. W- we get so caught up in our own story that that we see the things that we're doing without, and we don't see the pieces that we brought with us. Mm-hmm. And that was very much his way of, of looking at things. Um, and that's where a lot of this sort of um, this 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 rich tradition of through hiking is. You know, it, it gets its first version in Earl Schaefer's story, and then a lot of different versions have been built since. What's interesting about the Emma Gatewood story, she threw hikes in the mid-50s. She had been born and raised in the Appalachians, uh, just across the Ohio River from West Virginia in southeastern Ohio. Um, and she... Uh, you know, she was used to walking in the woods and and collecting berries and leaves for medicines and um and and people earning their not just a livelihood in an economic sense, but their survival out of their day to day interaction with uh, the, so, the the land around them. What Shaper so, so sees
0: as hikes, a what sees as a in, wilderness, she sees it as a human environment. Exactly, and, and she knows how to, to how to make it benefit her. Um, it's really, they, they see the same place. They just, they have such a profound, but what they see is profoundly different.
1: Yeah. So she, um, you know, where Schaefer very much de-emphasizes his interactions with others to her, that's just a part of what she's up to. And she's, she's happy to do that. Um, so she doesn't take part in the, uh, the mythology. Um, and that was, uh, and she garnered a whole lot of publicity, uh, so that's where this conflict between them came. It wasn't, uh, you know, it it wasn't that they had a, a lot of interpersonal, inter- they didn't have any interpersonal interaction with one another, but, but Schaefer did not embrace her story. Um, and he was always keen to contrast his from hers. Um, and, but to me, the interesting thing is that you can see in the comparison of these two stories, how many different versions of the outdoors and wilderness there are. And, When we do the I'm alone in nature uh, version of the story, well, that might mean that we're coming from a certain class background, a certain geographic background, you know, that can – that has the luxury to idealize these things. She came from a bare bones working class background in the mountains herself and therefore had a very different notion of what
0: it was. I mean it's it's an ugly story uh, when you find out what she – was escaping from because in I don't think there's much, I, I'm not a PhD in psychology, but there's not much doubt to me. She was walking to get away from some things. Um, and uh, boy, it's, it it's, yeah, it's, it's harsh. Um, so your book made me think a lot about planning. Um, one of the, the, the last chapters devoted to Bill Bryson. Uh, and uh, to his bestseller *Walk in the Woods*, which I think you say increased traffic on the Appalachian Trail by forty-five percent uh, for at least three to four years. Yeah, um, it's extraordinary. Um, and but one of the things that uh, Bill uh, snarls about and jokes about a lot was like the ineptitudes of the National Forest Service um, and their contradictory and and irreconcilable attempts at planning things. Um, there are lots of plans in this um, book that never quite work. Uh, there are a lot. There's lots of going back to the drawing board. Um, so I, I would. I'm curious. What does the history of the Appalachian Trail, in one sense, it's um, it's one of the most uh, remarkable successes in the history of American planning uh, that it even got built, um, that it went, that it happened at all. Um, on the other hand, it's complete it, – it, 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 the number of, sort of failures that Bill identified and others have identified that you identify are, are also extraordinary. So what do we make of it in terms of – as a sort of piece of evidence about the history of planning?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you could, you could draw a couple of different insights uh, and they might even contradict one another. Um, you know, so one is that the trail in its initial formulation – Um, came almost completely outside government circles. Um, The idea of it, it was organized by this private volunteer effort. But of course, you you could only run the trail through the Great Smoky Mountains um, if they were protected, and they were protected by Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So there was never no planning involved. But in the early days, it really was this sort of organic um, Mm. volunteer-driven thing. The federal government came along uh, beginning in the 1970s and really picking up in the 80s and 90s, protecting the trail and turning it into what is now effectively a, a narrow national park. Um, but they were coming around after the fact to protect something that this you know, standalone effort had created. Um, so I suppose one insight is the possibilities of doing things. Without uh, you know uh, ridiculously long and complicated planning processes. On the other hand, we only have the trail that we have today because of the time and the dedication and the governmental funding and the governmental legal authority to piece together today's AT corridor. We wouldn't have the trail today. We really wouldn't, given the the trends in land development and the difficulty of keeping the trail in one piece in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. uh, It would have fallen apart by now. Um, It hasn't because of good old-fashioned behind the scenes civil servants doing non-sexy work day in and day out and lo and behold
0: it's you know, a very non-sexy chapter i just have to say you do your you do your best to make it you know uh, uh, it, there's no gunfight and 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 uh, there's no car chase in that chapter about about the the collection of of people who piece this together into this 10 foot wide national park it's uh,
1: yeah, you know what though that uh, I enjoyed that chapter as much as any of them because seeing what it takes to to create this thing behind yeah. the scenes, it doesn't just happen. Um, and uh, yeah, the you know, no nobody is you know rushing off to buy books about bureaucracy. I get that, um, <laughs> but seeing the nuts and bolts that it takes to put this thing together, you know, in a way, if you walk on the AT, the the fact that you can't see any bureaucracy, what you can see are mountains and, and vistas and trees and things like that. The fact that you can't see it is testimony to how successful it has been in creating this corridor.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really struck that you were telling this uh, a biography of a feature of the built environment, and you did it through the biographies, through 10, 10 biographies, more, 10 or more uh, uh, biographies of people. Um was that always your intent? I mean, why how did you come up with that and 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 why did you do it in that way?
1: Yeah, I I'm surprised actually at how consistent that approach was. I I thought it would work and then I worked on the book and I felt like it it did work. Um the reason was that what I was fundamentally interested in about the trail was um the way that people created it to meet their own needs and The reason it's written as these different chapter-length biographies about each of these people is, you know, I think good biography is always both about the individual who is the subject of the biography, but also the time and the circumstance that they live in. And I thought that if readers could see, you know, who was uh, – You know, Myron Avery, what kind of person was he? Where did he come from? What motivated him? What was his personality like? If you could see him as a real person um, and saw how the life of that real person um, found a lot of focus in creating this trail, well, then we would get more of an appreciation for how the trail reflects these individuals' needs. Um, So to me, the best way to understand it as a human built place. Was to understand the people who were doing it, um, and you know they are very different people from very different time periods with wildly different personalities. As you mentioned, you know, not not a small number of them leading moderately to severely troubled lives in one way or another. Um, but uh, to me, that um, that helped convey uh, the the aspect of the trail that I wanted to get at.
0: Uh, I'm, in the last chapter, you uh, described going up Springer Mountain, I think, and uh, you found yourself, like a good planner, uh, being attracted to the question of stormwater management. Um, and I, I resonate because I, uh, anyone who walks the Appalachian Trail, it soon begins thinking a lot about drainage uh, and any hiking trail because you know, it's, you've created this path that goes up the side of a hill. Where does water run down? Um, it runs down the side and it finds the path of least resistance, and it's off in the trails. So, and you know, it rained heavily last weekend. I'm sure that a lot of the trails are washed out, or or there. What it that struck me was um, it's a different way of seeing the Appalachian Trail. Um, and it's it struck me also. It always has struck me how much labor is required by volunteers to continually modify and remodify the landscape in order to keep a wilderness trail. Yeah, There's a, you know, quotes around wilderness trail.
1: Yeah. Sure. Right. But, um, yeah, look, the, the, you know, erosion has to be managed. You know, once, uh, we've cleared a path and once a few boot treads have walked across it, you get a little bit of a gully and the water finds the lowest point and the water runs down that gully and deepens the gully. And for massive lengths of the trail, it is this gully dug out of the forest floor that, that, that people tromp through. Um, so, uh, you know, noticing the, the, the interesting thing to me was, you know, perhaps I'm predisposed with this planner's background to always be seeing the infrastructure of things. And I suppose that's a, a curse as much as anything, but, um, you know, as much as the trail is a built place and as much as I try to, you know, um, Uh, I suppose, you know, pop a few balloons in terms of, you know, the mythology of nature in the way that I wrote the book. Even still, even an urban planner in the 21st century walking on that trail can't help but be struck by, you know, the, the natural qualities in it and what nature is doing all of the time, including, you know, shaping a mountain with rainfall in a way that you, you know, might not fully appreciate if you don't walk quietly through the woods and, you know, see where these notches are being carved out by the water going down the hillside. Um, And I think it's pretty cool that this place, even, you know, a hundred years after somebody thought up the idea for it, even with all the, you know, uh, 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 craziness and complications of the world that surround it, it still has that capacity to make us, to help us take note of, of the world. And that's a pretty cool thing.
0: It's a very cool thing. It makes me, as I was uh, finished the book, I was thinking, um, you know, uh, if you expand your list of things that Americans have built in the 20th century, um, uh, part of the built environment, uh, you know, Saturn V is nice. That was a good thing. That was pretty impressive. Uh, Feats of engineering and architecture, things that, uh, rightly or wrongly, I think probably rightly, we tend to look back and assess cultures by what they've built. And what they've used um and uh what do you think the Appalachian Trail tells us about ourselves what what does it what can we learn about ourselves from the appalachian trail
1: I think in the end, it is a place that was built to meet our needs and our needs for uh escape from you know the world that we live our day-to-day lives in, and when you view it as that, you can see it as a reflection of, you know, the, uh, the, the culture around it. Um, so I think what it says is we've got this pretty strong need. Uh, it uh, we. We revise it over time as needed based on whatever the circumstances surrounding us in society are. So there's this very durable but very malleable idea of what nature is, and it's something that our culture creates for us and reinvents for us over time. Now, I'm not – I'm far from the first person to, to think of nature in that way, and there's great books out there that you know convey that overall idea, but – when you see the specific story of this one specific place and how it has changed over time, you know, as a result of that process, I think you get, uh, you know, a sort of different picture of it.
0: My guest today has been Philip D'Anieri. He's the author of The Appalachian Trail, A Biography, which is out since June 8th, is being uh, receiving fantastic reviews, and is well worth a read during a summer holiday. Philip, thanks so much for, for being with us.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Geo Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.